Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, probably a very familiar text as soon as I say the chapter to many of you. It is the text, the first text, one of two, where the Ten Commandments is, is, is located there for us in, in God's Word. And as is our custom, not out of respect for the preacher, but out of respect for the Word of God, whose Word it is, that you stand for the reading of the Scriptures this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, this this month, January, so far uh, of this new year, we've been kind of going through a brief sermon series of sorts on the topic, uh, kind of touching all around the topic of of holiness or sanctification. Uh, Over the last two Sundays in particular, we've looked at Hebrews 12, 14, which tells us, to strive for or pursue peace with all men and holiness, what does it say, without which no man will see the Lord, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews twelve fourteen. And then last Sunday we looked at Romans eight thirteen, which speaks of the necessity of believers uh, mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the body by the Holy Spirit. 
And in the course of those two sermons, kind of throughout uh, the time we've spent in those texts, we've seen something of a definition of holiness, what it is, uh, a definition uh, of sanctification. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning, well known, I trust, to, to most, if not all of you, this morning, it doesn't so much give us a definition of holiness, a definition of, of sanctification, but more like a detailed description of it. If you want to know what holiness looks like, if you want to know what holiness entails, what it's all about, what it includes, the place to look is the Ten Commandments. The place to look is our text, the Ten Commandments. God's standard for holiness is his moral law. And the clearest summary in scripture of God's moral law is found here in the Ten Commandments. See Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, question 41 tells us as much. It's a summary of God's moral law. In other words, the Ten Commandments are what? They are the standard, the God-given standard for right and wrong. It's in the Ten Commandments primarily that we see God's will for his redeemed people. We see what God requires of us as his redeemed people. Now, that alone is so countercultural; it's hard to even uh, give, do that justice. The idea that there is a, a standard that God applies to all men, that, that we don't get to make it up as we go. In our culture, we're very used to the you know, relative morality. It's, it's all whatever you think it is. Well, Exodus 20 says, not so fast. There is a God and you're not him. And that God is the lawgiver, not you. And we don't get to make it up as we go. We don't get to do things on our own terms. It's a counterfeit holiness at best that doesn't seek to conform to God's commandments. It's a self-made, illegitimate form of holiness that really is not holiness at all. The Puritans would call that will worship. Really what that is, it's self-worship. It's, it's, you, it's you and I trying to put ourselves in the place of whom? God, the lawgiver. It's us being a law unto ourselves. We don't have that option. God won't, God won't have it. Well, Exodus chapter 20, uh, it's one of the two places in Scripture where the Ten Commandments can be found. Exodus 20, the one that we're looking at this morning, is one. The other one is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. So the fact that God gives it to us twice in Scripture should get our attention. It should make us sit up and take Notice, now the Ten Commandments, uh, as I sound like a broken record, I think they've fallen on hard times in our day. Maybe that's been true in some ways throughout the history of the church, but I think in our day in particular, it has fallen on, on hard times. The Ten Commandments used to be one of the most basic building blocks of Christian education, both in the church and in the home, and even, shocking as it may sound in our day, even in schools. It's one of the basic things that you had to learn. Because what's it about? How does God want me to live? There aren't too many things that are more important, that that should be more important than that. If you know your church history at all, you might know that many of the 16th and 17th century Protestant catechisms and confessions uh, included extensive treatments of the Ten Commandments. It was that important. Very often they, they centered around three things. You might know what those are. The Apostles' Creed, the basics of the Christian faith, the Ten Commandments, the basics of the Christian life, and the Lord's Prayer. It was those those three things 
that, that, that the, uh, the, the reformers and those after them thought and saw fit to be the, the, the ABCs of the Christian faith, the ABCs of the Christian life as well. So in a sense, if we're not, if we're not teaching the Ten Commandments to our children as parents, we are failing them. It's not gracious to not teach our children God's commandments. We're not helping them if we fail to do that. And that the Ten Commandments are never heard in our churches, in our church here, if we're not teaching them and even preaching them. Uh, there's something dreadfully wrong. We're, we're, there's something missing. If to, to make the whole counsel of God known uh, in the church, what the phrase that Paul used, includes God's commandments. Um, again, the Apostles' Creed teaches you what to believe. The Ten Commandments teaches, you, teaches us as God's people how we are to live. You know, in our, in our day, uh, I, won't, I won't ask for a show of hands, uh, but you know, many believers in our day, many well-meaning, sincere believers in Christ, can't even name all ten of them, and certainly not in order. I've heard men uh, going up for ordination at Presbytery that couldn't name all ten, couldn't name them. In our Presbytery, couldn't name, not, not recite them, Name them. That should not be. That should not be the case. Ignorance of God's law abounds. Misunderstandings regarding God's law abound even more. False views of God's law, false ways of looking at them and understanding them. And that's in the church, not even out there in the world. That is to our shame and that is to our detriment that that is the case in many ways. Now, this morning, uh, even the longest sermon, which I'll try not to do this morning, uh, we can't even begin to cover all that there is to say about the law of God, and certainly not even all there is to say about the Ten Commandments in, in particular today. I, I can't even really do justice to each individual commandment this morning in one sermon, so I won't, I won't try to even do that. But what we want to do today is to at least establish a few basic foundational truths concerning the Ten Commandments. To give us a place to start, a place to hang your hat, so that you might look at them rightly. At least have a beginning place to look at them rightly, a firm footing on which to stand, that we might approach the Ten Commandments with a proper understanding and might begin to obey God's commandments in a right way and from a right heart. Well, this morning we're going to look at three things uh, as usual. Uh, I put these points on the back of your bulletins on the outline there if you want to look there. Uh, first, the first thing we're going to see, which is something that I've overlooked a number of times in my own reading of it, is the promulgation of the Ten Commandments. The promulgation of the Ten Commandments. The second thing, the preface to the Ten Commandments. And the third thing, the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Sounds like a, like a grammar lesson, right? But we'll, hopefully it won't sound quite like that as we get into it. So the first thing we see in our text here in, Exodus, in almost in Exodus, Exodus 20, uh, verse 1, is the promulgation of the Ten Commandments. What does it mean to promulgate something? It means to, to, to publish it, to make it known. To make it known. That's, that's what God is doing here in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And you know, it's, it's probably very easy to overlook uh, that particular part of our, of our text, but the way, the way that the Ten Commandments were promulgated should get our attention. Even though we, we, sometimes if you're familiar with a text, any text of scripture, the more familiar you are with it, sometimes you kind of hear it and it goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't really grab your attention 
It doesn't grab you by the shoulders and throw you down in your chair and make you go, whoa, wait a minute. But it really should, verse 1, should, should have that effect. It had that effect, as we read in our text, on the people who were there. What does verse 1 say? It's a very short verse. Verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I've read this text, I don't know how many times. I've, I've had this text memorized and recited it. And the first verse never struck me. It never jumped off the page at me the way that it probably should have. Think about it for a minute. Who is doing the speaking here? Was God, was God speaking through Moses? Was God saying, Moses, you know, God, that's how God normally worked. No, this time it wasn't Moses standing up and saying, God told me this. Thus saith the Lord. You didn't need a thus saith the Lord because it was the Lord saying thus. God spoke all these words. How rare a thing is it? In the, now, all of scripture is God's word, right? All of it is given by God. It's God breathed. It's inspired. But how often in scripture do you actually hear, see God himself speaking to his people? Speaking to his prophet? Certainly throughout the Old Testament. Speaking directly to his people. This might be the only place in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20. It should grab our attention. This was not normally the way that God spoke to his people. Hebrews 1, verse 1. A familiar text tells us this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. And how did he do it? By the prophets. And then what does Hebrews go on to say? But in these last days, he's spoken to us how? By his son. By his son. Now, that's the way God normally did things in the Old Testament. He spoke through his, his mouthpiece, his prophet, his priests, and his king. Uh, but when it came to making his moral law known to his people, what did he do? He himself spoke. In Deuteronomy 5, the other passage that deals with the Ten Commandments, verse 22 Moses is kind of giving a recap. He's saying, remember what happened back then, after the Exodus. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy 5.22. This is what Moses says. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Think about that. What other part of scripture can you say that that's true of? God himself spoke them. God himself wrote them. And he wrote them on tablets of stone. Why did God write his law, his, his moral law, on tablets of stone? You know, we, we, say, we have a saying like that. We say something is written in stone. What are you saying? It's not going to change. It's abiding. This isn't written on, on a whiteboard you know, where you can just run your finger across it and wipe it out. It's written in stone by the finger, so to speak, of God himself. So by the very manner of their promulgation, God has set apart the Ten Commandments. It's as if, you know, you, you, sometimes you have a red-letter Bible. The words of Jesus are in red. There's debatable value to that. All the scripture should be paid attention to. But it's as if God took a highlighter and said, Exodus chapter 20, and highlighted the whole thing. It's as if God did that, to make it jump off the page at you. It's all my word, but pay attention to that one. Pay attention, pay special attention to that, that one. J.C. Ryle, always quote J.C. Ryle, right? He writes, 
the following about this very thing. He says, I see a broad, plain distinction between these Ten Commandments and any other part of the Law of Moses. Remember, the Law of Moses is a very broad category. You've got the ceremonial law, you've got the civil law. Well, he's saying he sees a distinction between that and the moral law. It was the only part spoken in the hearing of all the people. And after the Lord had spoken it, the book of Deuteronomy expressly says, Deuteronomy 5.22, he added no more. It was delivered under circumstances of singular solemnity. Say that five times real fast. And accompanied by thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. And it was the only part written on, ta on tables of stone by God himself. It was the only part put inside the ark. The Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat. Now, the, the next time I can think of, of such a thing happening where God was the one doing the speaking and the hearing of all the people was when? The baptism of Jesus Christ. We just went through that uh, a, num a number of months ago, probably about a year ago, actually. And even then, when, we, when I was preaching on it, that never really struck me how odd that was, how, how singular of an event that really was, that God... In Mark 1.11, uh, you heard a voice from heaven. The people did when Christ was baptized, and this is what it said. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus was the intended, you know, the main one he was speaking to and speaking of, but it was heard, it was heard by everybody there. It wasn't understood by everybody there, but think about the Ten Commandments and the baptism of his son. There's significance, surely, to that. How greatly did God the Father testify to the person and work of his Son to once more speak from heaven for all to hear, as he had only done once before? How much should we think of the baptism of Christ and what it entails? The book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, I won't read that whole text, but the writer of Hebrews there, if you're familiar with chapter 12, he makes the case that what we have come to now, uh, now that Christ has come, that the, the gathering we're coming to now, we should think of it as more awe-inspiring than what they had experienced in Exodus 20. I know what you're thinking. That, that sounds like a tall order. It sounds like something that's difficult to imagine. You know, if this place had fire and smoke, and I guess some churches have that now, right? They have the big uh, fireworks show and things to keep you uh, entertained and awake. Um, but think about it. This is what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says that we in our day have come to, quote, Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 22. In other words, he's saying they came to an earthly mountain. You come to something bigger than that. May not feel bigger than that, but it probably should. And then it says that we've come to, quote, verse 24, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have privileges that they would have loved to have had. And then it says in, in the end of that chapter that we're warned not to refuse him who does what? Who speaks to us from heaven. They're not the only ones that get to hear God speaking from heaven. You do too in the person of Christ. And lastly, we're told there in verses 28 to 29, it says, Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. That, that phrase is practically lifted from Exodus 20. The people were afraid to come near the mountain. Why? They were afraid to come near the consuming fire, the holiness of God. 
God, has God changed? Has God kind of chilled out or relaxed or, or relaxed his uh, standards? No, God has not changed. Hebrew says God is still a consuming fire. He is still as holy as he has ever been. Just like his law was etched in stone, God's character does not change. His holiness does not change. His standards for his people to live a life of gratitude in holiness has not changed at all. His commandments are still as relevant to us now as they ever were back when he first gave them. That brings us to our second point, and that's the preface to the preface to the Ten Commandments. You know, it's often said that you know context is key. If somebody says something embarrassing, what do they almost always say? Well, what I was said was taken out of context. I didn't really mean what it says. I, what, it, what I said, I didn't mean it the way you took it. If you were offended by it, I must have meant something much better than than the way you took it. I apologize that you misunderstood me. That's how that usually goes, right? Um, well, that's, that's certainly true in some ways to having a right understanding is to understand the context. And that's really true when it comes to having a truly Christian understanding of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever thought about the context in which they were given? You know, we have this tendency, I know I do, especially since our chapters and our Bibles are numbered and the verses are all numbered. If I were to say to you, uh, where's the love chapter? First Corinthians 13. You know, pick all kinds of things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good that you can do the Bible drill. It's good that if you think of a topic, you can, you can go to a place in your Bible and know where to look. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we think of these texts as if they're in a vacuum. As if the whole Bible reads like the book of Proverbs. You know, one thing just kind of strung. Not that Proverbs is totally random, but we think of it that way. Well, if you think about the law, God's commandments, his moral law that way, it's going to be very confusing. It's going to hamper your efforts at living a holy life in pleasing your heavenly Father. Um, the context matters. And the preface, as it's come to be known, maybe you've never heard it called that, but verse 2, verses 1 and 2, but especially verse 2 is often referred to as the preface to the Ten Commandments. And what, what is it? What is it? So look at verse 2. It's also Deuteronomy 5, 6, but verse 2 of Exodus 20, he says... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you don't get that verse, you'll go wrong with the rest of it. If you don't stop and grasp what he's saying in that verse, you will not understand what the rest of the commandments say, or especially how you're to go about seeking to obey them. If I could sum it up in one sentence, it would be this. Deliverance comes before duty. Deliverance comes before duty. Deliverance came to the Israelites before the commandments were given. God did not, this is how, this is how God did not say them. Their, you know, their cries came up before God. He heard their cries. He remembered, this is what the Bible says. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? His covenant relationship with his people. And he said, I'm going to do something. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to do something about it. And then he came down to them and said, look, guys. Here's these Ten Commandments. Do them, and I'll think about getting you out of this mess. Is that the way it's given? Is that the way the Scripture gives its commands uh, since the fall? No. God doesn't say, do this, and then I'll save you. He saved them and says, now do this. Because I've saved you, do this. Deliverance precedes duty. God did not give these commandments to the Israelites as a way of salvation. 
They were never given as a way of salvation. That was never their intention. So if we look at the commandments as if I do all this, God will save me. God will owe me. We've got the whole thing wrong. We've got the whole thing wrong. Living lives of holiness unto God was to be their response to his grace. He graciously redeemed them and rescued them from slavery, from their slavery in Egypt first, and then he tells them how he would have them to live. The Shorter Catechism uh, says about the same thing in question 44. It says, what does the preface, that's this verse, verse 2, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? Answer, the preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, Therefore, we are bound to keep all of his commandments. So there's three reasons there. Why are we as Christians, if you're a believer this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, why are you to keep God's commandments? Three reasons given in Exodus 20, verse 2. At, at least three reasons. One, we are to obey God's commandments because he's God. Because he is the Lord. What does that mean? He's in charge. He is our creator, and we are his creatures, and we owe him obedience as his creatures. He calls the shots. He made us, and so we belong to him. Secondly, we are to obey God's commandments because in Christ, he is not just God. That would be enough. He's our God. That, that one word changes everything. You'll notice five times in Exodus 20, what does God call himself? In, in verse 2, starting, I am the Lord your God. Verse 5, you shall not bow down, down to them or serve them idols. Why? For I, the Lord your God. He peppers it throughout the commandments five times to impress upon his people. I'm not just God. I'm your God. And this is how your God expects his people to live. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in Vain. Verse 10. The seventh day is a Sabbath to whom? The Lord your God. And then lastly, in the fifth commandment, it's not just the first half of the law, right? Honor your father and mother. Why? That the days may be long, your days may be long in the land that whom is giving you? The Lord your God. Sounds like he's trying to impress a point upon us by means of, of repetition. And so I asked this morning, is, is the Lord your God? Can you say he's my God this morning? He's not everybody's God. He's not everybody's God and prized possession just by means of being created by him. You belong to him. You owe him obedience as God, even if you don't know him, because he has made you. He has given you the breath in your, in your lungs and given you the food on your table regardless. He's been good to you, even if you've rebelled against him. He's given you life and everything else. But is he your God? He's only your God by faith in Christ, if your sins are forgiven in the name of, of Christ. The third thing, the third, the third reason that it gives us in, in verse 2, why the Israelites and us today are to obey God's commandments, is that he is our Redeemer. Look again at verse 2. I am the Lord. There's one, your God, there's two. And what did the Lord your God do? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in case they missed the point, what was Egypt? The land of slavery, the house of slavery. They were in misery. 
They cried out to God for deliverance because things were so bad. That's a picture of our deliverance from sin, which is a far worse taskmaster than, than Pharaoh ever was. And so our reasons for obeying God's commandments are no different. In fact, they're higher than those, if anything, of, of the Israelites. So our redemption in Christ, your redemption in Christ from sin, does not free us from the obligation to obey God's commands. Rather, uh, we're being freed from the curse of having broken God's law and broken his commandments. The Confession of Faith, chapter 19, part 5, it actually tells us that the gospel in Christ, the gospel actually much strengthens this obligation. The gospel doesn't, isn't a hall pass. The gospel isn't, hey, don't worry about obeying God now. If anything, the gospel gives you more reason to obey, not less. We don't often hear that kind of a thing, but it's absolutely true. The confession, the writers of the confession couldn't be more right. Maybe, maybe Matthew 28, verse 20, part of the Great Commission, should have been quite kind of a hint to us in this regard or a clue. Why? What does Jesus include in the Great Commission? Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what else does he say in verse 20? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If we're not doing that, we're not making disciples. It's plain as day. Elsewhere, John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. Law and love are not butting heads. They're not contrary to each other. So we don't, we don't obey the commandments of God in order to be saved. You don't earn salvation by it. Rather, we are saved so that we might obey God and obey him out of gratitude for the salvation that's ours in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Obedience is our response to God's grace. Not the only one, but it, it's a response to God's grace. And it has always been that way. It was that way for the children of Israel, even under Moses. Their obedience, as well as ours, was to be motivated by God's goodness and grace. Ephesians 2, 8-10, to what does Paul say? He says, you're not saved by what? Works. Not at all, not a shred. We don't ever, you know, the, the definition of saving faith in Christ we looked at it last week, I believe, was that you, it's a resting, a receiving and resting upon Christ for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. You're, you're resting on it. You're putting your weight on it like I am on this pulpit or like you are on the chair. We don't rest in our works at all. They are not the foundation of our standing before a holy God. Only Christ is. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. We're not saved, verse 9. We're not saved by works, but we are saved, verse 10, what? Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. He didn't save you by them, but he does save you for them, for the purpose of them. We are to obey and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can borrow the, the words, the wording from Exodus 20, verse 2, we are to, to obey and serve Christ because he is the Lord our God who redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Same motivation, maybe even bigger than what they had in Exodus 20. Well, that brings us to the third, the third, and maybe in some ways the most important thing. This kind of follows right on the heels of, of the meaning of the preface, and that is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Why did God give them? What, 
What is the reason for God's commandments? Uh, theologians commonly speak of three uses, so-called, of the law, three purposes, three reasons for giving them. And I'm gonna, I'd like to go over the, those briefly this morning just to give you a, a, a place to hang your hat again, so to speak. The first, uh, I wish there was an easier word for it than this, the first use of the law, so-called, is the pedagogical use. And that's what Paul talks about in Galatians, about the, the law being a tutor to lead you by the hand to Christ. And this is what the larger catechism says about that in question 96 of the larger catechism. What particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men, that is to unbelievers at this time? Answer, the moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ or upon their conti continuance in the estate or condition and way of sin to leave them inexcusable and under the curse of it. But that middle section, to awaken their consciences to flee from the wrath to come and drive them to Christ. That's the first use of the law, even to the unregenerate. And what, what is it? It's, in that way, the law, what does it do? It acts like a mirror of sorts, showing the unbeliever, showing us our sin, showing us our need for Christ and driving us to look to Christ for salvation from our sin. The law shows you your need for the Savior. That's the place to start. If you're not a Christian, that's where you are. That's what the law should do for you. It should show you your need for Jesus Christ. The law shows us our desperate need for the Savior. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3.20 says it this way, For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law says, you think you're okay and I'm okay. Here's what you really look like. Here's, you're, you're more of a mess than you realize. We roll out of bed, don't look in the mirror. We walk outside and get embarrassed. Well, this, the law says, here's how you really look. Here's how you really are. Paul actually gives testimony to this exact function of the law in his own life. And he quotes one of the 10th commandment in Romans 7, 7. He says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? Is something wrong with the law? And what does Paul say? By no means. You will look in vain to see Paul down talking, bad talking, trash talking the law of God. He doesn't do it. The law is good. The law is spiritual. I delight in the law according to my inward members. Romans 7, 7, he says, what shall we say? What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Why? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And what does that 10th commandment do? It rips the rug right out from under your feet like the rich young ruler, doesn't it? We think we've kept them all. We've kept them all outwardly. I've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never ripped anybody off. I've, you know, when you get to the false witness part, maybe you might have a little trouble. But <laughs> Tenth Commandment says what? Guess what? The sins here listed here have to do not just with outward actions, but with the heart. I can covet all day and you'll never know unless I say it. But God will know. And coveting is one of the top ten, so to speak, on God's, on God's list. It's the law of God that shows our sin to us. You know, we, we naturally, I think, some of us, tend to think we're doing, we're doing okay. 
And how do we back that up? We look at other people. And we tend to look at other people that make us look better by comparison. I used to say this was the, I, this is probably not fair, but I, I don't know, but I don't watch daytime television anymore. But I used to say this was the Oprah Winfrey factor. You'd watch those daytime shows, uh, Maury Povich, whatever it is, where they, they bring out the freak show and you go to yourself, ah, I'm not so bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I've got, I've got things kind of wired. I, look, I feel like I'm doing pretty well now. Well, don't look at, at Maury Povich. Look at the scriptures. Look at the, the commandments. If you would have a right estimate of your own character and conduct, the place to look is the scriptures. And the place in particular in those scriptures to look is the Ten Commandments. They show us, God's law does, our sin and our need for Christ. The second use, first use, pedagogical, second use, much easier word, the civil or civic use. Burkhoff uh, writes in his Systematic Theology, he says, the law serves the purpose of restraining sin, holding it back, right, and promoting righteousness. Considered from this point of view, the law presupposes sin, sin is already in existence, and is necessary on account of sin. It serves the purpose of God's common grace, not saving grace, common grace in the world at large. So the law, even if it doesn't save, even if someone doesn't come to Christ by faith, well, that's the main purpose or the first purpose, uh, the benefit of society is brought about in part by God's law, by his commandments, both the believer and the unbeliever alike. Sin has detrimental, to say the least, effects on any community, on any society, on any nation. Righteousness, on the other hand, is beneficial to any community or society or nation. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness does what? Exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So the law of God, in order for this use of the law to actually be of use, in some way has to be made known to society in general. If we as the church and us as individual believers are not in some way making God's commandments known, how will they ever know them? How will your neighbors ever know of their sin and their need for Christ, much less anything else, if the law of God is not made known? How will it restrain sin if it is silenced? God's commandments, his precepts, his will must be made known. I, I don't think it takes much to look at our own society right now and see that the ignorance of God's law and of his gospel has had some very detrimental effects in our society as well. Well, the last use, use number three, is called often the normative use. The normative use. This is often referred to as the third use of the law. This is the, the law being used as a rule of life for the believer, Burkhoff says, reminding them of their duties and leading them in the way of life and salvation. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that this use of the law is the principal use for the believer in Christ. It's the main use. All three matter. But for the Christian, the third use is the main, not the only one, but it's the main principal use. So what does this mean? It means after the law has done its work in driving you to Christ for salvation, the first use of the law, it then becomes our rule for life, showing us how God would have us to live in light of our salvation in Christ. The larger catechism also speaks of this use in question 97. It says, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate, to believers? What, you know, if, I, if I'm saved, why do I have to worry about the law? What does it matter now? 
If I'm saved from its, from its penalty, why do I have to think about it? It says, although they that are regenerate, believer, and believe in Christ, be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned. If you're in Christ, the penalty of breaking God's law is taken in your place by Christ. Yet besides the general uses of it, common to them with all men, it is of special use to believers. How? To show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it. He fulfilled it in our place. And enduring the curse of it in their stead. And for their good and second, thereby to provoke them more to thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves unto it as a rule of their obedience. It, it shows us how much we owe to Christ for our salvation. It makes us appreciate and keep going back to Christ and not to ourselves. And it provokes us to thankfulness. And what's one of the main ways that we show our thankfulness to God for our salvation? Obeying his commandments. Loving him and obeying his commandments. It's even in the Ten Commandments. When he talks about the fourth commandment, or the second commandment, rather, right? About those who hate him, and then showing steadfast love to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. Love has always been the point of the commandments. It's right there in the text. That's not a New Testament thing. So for you, if you're a believer in Christ, the commandments of God still have great usefulness to you. They show us our debt to Christ for our salvation, both in his fulfilling it in our place and his death to pay its penalty. It moves us to thankfulness to him for all he has done for our salvation. And it moves us to express in part that thanksgiving by striving. It's work, right? It's hard work. It takes effort. Striving to conform ourselves to his law in our daily lives. Again, the believer, if you're a believer in Christ, you have much more reason to obey the commands of God uh, than someone outside of Christ does. So once, once again, we see that gratitude is not the only motivation, but gratitude is the primary motivation for the Christian in obeying God's commandments. Gratitude for salvation. May the Lord Jesus Christ grant that us and his church might once again gain a right understanding and appreciation of his commandments. May we learn to say with David in Psalm 119.97, David says, this sounds strange to our ears, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. David said, I love your law. He says it twice in Psalm 119, including verse 97. May, may the Lord fill our hearts with gratitude for his great work of our salvation, that you and I might learn to show our thankfulness to him through lives lived in sincere, even if imperfect, obedience in this life to his commandments, to the glory of Christ. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. Uh, we, we don't naturally say things like David. We don't say, oh, Lord, how we love your law. It's our meditation all the day. And we, we confess that we have not often meditated upon your law. That we, we might meditate upon your word in general, but we, we sometimes stay away from these passages, but we shouldn't. And we ask that you would change our hearts, change our minds. Those of us who are in Christ today, those you have saved by your grace through faith in Christ alone, that you would move in our hearts. Help us to love you and keep your commandments and not separate those two things. Help us to keep in mind that you are the Lord, that you are our God in Christ, and that in Christ you have redeemed us from sin. And because of all that, you give us so much more reason to be grateful 
and so much more reason that out of gratitude we can obey your commands, meditate upon them, not see them as burdensome at all, but see them as a way that we can show our thanks, a way that we can reflect, even if imperfectly, the, the character, the holiness of our Heavenly Father. We thank you that in Christ we can say that you are our God and we are your people by your grace. And for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.